Welcome to this episode of Mapping Out Ethereum 2.0 with Christine Kim and Ben Edgington. Join the conversation as the ETH 2.0 Dream Team discuss its live development, its potential impact on the crypto markets, and spotlight major Ethereum news events as they develop. This episode is sponsored by PumaPay. Just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. Hey guys, welcome back to the show. Another week, another Mapping Out ETH2 episode on everything you need to know about Ethereum and ETH 2.0 development. For those of you who are new listeners to the show, I'm Christine Kim, a research associate at Coindesk. And I'm Ben Edgington, lead product owner of Teku at Consensus. This week, Christine and I are joined by a special guest, Kasala Hemachandra, the founder and CEO of My Ether Wallet, is with us to talk about the services and products he's working on to progress the ETH 2.0 vision. Welcome, Kasala. Great to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me. Great to be here. You are a legend in the uh, Ethereum community. <laughs> ben was saying that you're an OG in the Ethereum space. And so for this week's community segment, we do a segment on the Ethereum community every week. We basically just want to ask you, Kasala, questions about my Ether Wallet's ETH 2.0 staking program, how that's been going since its launch in December, and also just about your background like in the space. Let's start off with the story. I mean, what's your story about My Ether Wallet? Yeah, let's do that. Uh, it's not that exciting. <laughs> uh, it's definitely uh, would... exciting. Look at the way he's laughing. So it's, I'm pretty sure it's exciting. <laughs> and this is like a firsthand experience from a user, which I hope would oh, be yeah. very helpful for, yes, <laughs> for, yes, for you, Kazala. And then I'm, I'm scared too. Let's see. <laughs> no, it's all good. No, I was looking back through my whole history of Ethereum transactions for tax purposes, yay, recently. And it turns out that my second ever on-chain transaction was a donation to my Ether wallet. Oh my and gosh, that was, thank you so much. <laughs> that was nearly five years ago. And I donated a whole Ether, which at the time was worth $11.63. <laughs> so I, I hope you spent it wisely. Yes, yes. We take all of our donations very wisely. We spend them. We make sure like it goes to a good cause or to build something very extremely important for our users. The company, you know, you guys first started back in mid-2015, but so much has changed since then. So much has gone on, not just on Ethereum, but even like my Ether wallet as a as a company has gone through changes. So since you guys started, your co-founder Taylor Monahan has gone mm -hmm. on to create her own crypto wallet service called MyCrypto. Muse expanding their services from not just wallets, but also connecting users to staking. A lot of things have changed. Tell me, in your view, in what important ways has Muse vision and mission changed over the years as Ethereum itself has evolved, as the company has evolved? Tell me a little bit about the evolution of the company since you guys first started. Got it. Yeah, we had to go all the way back to the beginning. Like a lot of us, I got into crypto with Bitcoin because that's like, you know, started in 2009. And I'm like, when I first heard about it, I think a lot of people thought it's just, a, you know, some monopoly coin um, lying in the internet and no one's going to use it. And it's just like a scam. Uh, that's exactly how I thought about it too. But like, as I, because I majored in computer engineering and towards my senior year, I started reading about 
like Bitcoin and blockchain and how that, that can change the world or how, how the technology basically works. And around the same time, the yellow paper for Ethereum came out. And then I read that and then immediately it just like clicked in my head. Oh my gosh, this is like 100x better than Bitcoin. So ever since then, I've been following Ethereum. And then the first time when Ethereum mainnet launched, users were having problems because only command line existed back then. So not everyone can understand or use command line. And I'm like, I was already working as a programmer slash a web, like a backend developer as a, and a web programmer. I'm like, okay, I know how the backend works. How, I know how this exactly works. So I can put together a simple interface to help out these users. And that was the very first my Ether wallet. And a lot of people were very skeptical about it. I mean, I totally understand because they have to kind of unlock their wallet and they were like, okay, what if it's a, a scam site? And what if they're gonna steal the funds? And that's why I made it open source so people can verify the code and make sure, okay, no, it's not, it's doing what it's supposed to do. So everything is good to go. And ever since then, my Ether wallet grew with Ethereum. So everything and anything that you can do in Ethereum can be accomplished using my Ether wallet. That's where we want my Ether wallet to be as well. So whenever we see a bottleneck, whenever we see a problem, like an accessibility problem for a user, or they're trying to accomplish something, but like it's extremely hard, they have to go through 15 different steps to accomplish that. That's when we jump in, we're like, okay, let's reduce it down to three steps maximum. And then let's take them through these steps and then uh, they, it, it, it'll make it easy for them to get into Ethereum and use Ethereum. Therefore, Ethereum will grow. And that's exactly how we started using it's staking because like the people who are new to Ethereum staking, it requests a couple of steps and it requests some of like, you have to be knowledgeable in running nodes, running validators, like having them on 24 seven and like a lot of backend stuff as well. That's when we jumped in, we we're like, okay, a regular user will not be able to accomplish these things. Uh, so we have to make it easy for them. And then that's when we introduced Ethereum to staking to my Ether wallet and like our mobile applications as well. So basically they can select any denomination of 32 ETH and basically click two buttons and stake it forever. So until the Ethereum withdrawals are enabled, they are like, they don't have to worry about it at all. So when, when the withdrawals are enabled, they can go and like gain or get back the, the interest plus the deposit if they want to. How many users does my Ether wallet have? And then how many signups have you guys had for the staking mm -hmm. program? So I do not have the exact numbers, but my Ether wallet has over 3 million unique visitors every month. So, and then we also don't track anyone. So, it's, so we only know exactly how many unique visitors came in and we don't know exactly what steps they took or like the heat maps or anything like that. We don't track anyone. We like really believe in user privacy and uh, over almost, I think it's close to $200 million worth of ETH is already staked to my wallet. So yeah, that's a big win-win for, I think the community and my wallet, because this is completely decentralized as well. So it's not like some of the centralized services are offering ETH to staking, but at the end of the day, they can control your private keys, they control your account. So not sure exactly how that's going to play out at the end, but in, in this case, you control your withdrawal keys. At the end of the day, no one has the ability to just like get your funds and run away because you are the person who's in control. 
you're using a third party staking provider yeah, rights to yeah. provide to run the actual validators and nodes and all of that as well. Yeah. Have you thought about decentralizing that at some stage in, in future, perhaps maybe when something like Rocket Pool is available? Yeah, so Rocket Pool is a good example because they coming up with like liquid uh, concept called liquid staking because now whenever you stake, you're getting a token back in return. I think it's called RETH. Basically, now you can trade this token, you can send this token to people. This token already has a value. It's like ETH plus the interest built into a token. And then at, at the same time, if you, whenever you are ready to withdraw it, withdraw it back to ETH, you have that capability too. So it's very amazing in a way because you're also earning interest, but your funds are not locked. And then you have this tradable token with you that you can trade and withdraw it back. At the same time, it's just like ETH. You can use it anywhere. Yeah, definitely. We are in the process of integrating services such as yeah, Rocket Pool and other services as well. Yeah. And speaking of accessibility, I want to hear more about what you think is the next bottleneck, what you think is the next pain point for Ethereum user accessibility. But before that, I want to also ask a quick tech question too. When you say that everything's decentralized on the part of withdrawal keys and being able to take out your ETH again once transfers are enabled, you also mentioned that users don't have to stake 32 ETH, the minimum required amount. They can just click two buttons and then stake on Ethereum. How does it work if you're a user and you only stake like two ETH instead of the full 32 ETH amount? How is the withdrawal key like broken up between multiple different users? How do they pool the money together? Is that all still a decentralized process? First of all, we do not provide that service yet. You cannot have fractions of 32, but we are in the process of integrating that. But the, unfortunately, the way that Ethereum is, or the, the contracts are built, only one person can hold the withdrawal keys. So that's where the concept of liquid staking comes in. So in a way, so the way that Rocket Pool is handling it, or will handle it, I think I checked a couple of days ago, they don't have that feature yet, or the fractional staking, they will issue a token in return. So at the end of the day, Rocket Pool is having control of the withdrawal keys and the validator keys. But the thing is, whatever you put in, let's say one ETH, you have one ETH of R ETH. So you, this is tradable. This is, you can send it to people. This is, this has value built into it. So in a way you're controlling that R ETH. So that's the yeah. only way to handle this situation. And services like Rocket Pool and other services are working on concept along those lines to make it happen. That makes more sense. I yeah. was confused because when you said decentralized, I was thinking in yeah. my head that Mew does fractional staking. I was like, wait a second, how is that even possible? Like yeah. you can't even, and so I was like, but that makes sense. As we're uh, all well aware, it's a long journey, this proof of stake journey from uh, the original kind of concept. Yes. And we're not even there yet. We have the merge, which is happening maybe early next year, who knows. How have you seen, what's your take on the sort of development of proof of stake over the last few years? Uh, how important do you see it as being to the Ethereum ecosystem that we deliver this? You know, what's the, what's the importance of proof of stake to Ethereum? Yeah, so um, proof of stake was, you know, basically the concept, right? Like when Ethereum first got introduced or when they were talking about it, they're like, okay, proof of work is just an intermediary consensus. We will not use it for more than one year. That's why they built that uh, ice age or the 
time bomb or like that that whole feature of exponentially getting harder the block time so that people have to move away from proof of work and then go to be a uh, proof of stake Vitalik recently put out a nice saying saying um, uh, it's not always about the technical difficulties it's also about the humans so he's like I only thought Ethereum will take one month to develop and it took six months or something six months or three months sorry like if I'm getting that number mistaken but somewhere along those lines and then he said I thought POS will take one year and then it took six years so <laughs> it's yeah like human conflicts and like arguments and you have to understand these are extremely smart people working on these concepts right so yeah it took uh, approximately six years I think and then hopefully by the beginning of next year or by the end of this year we'll have the merge where you'll merge uh, the beacon chain with the existing Ethereum chain and hopefully the withdrawals will be enabled and then we'll be working with POS, no more uh, proof of work, energy wastage or any of that. I think we are really close. And, and to answer your question, it's extremely important for Ethereum because that's what Ethereum is about. It's not just another proof of work chain. It was always meant to be proof of stake and everyone knew that's the case. And in order to get to that point, it's an extremely important step to switch over from proof of work to proof of stake. Afraid of missing out on the latest crypto opportunities? Well, then it's time to head on over to PumaPay.io. PumaPay's first liquidity pool is now live on PancakeSwap. Deposit liquidity today and claim your share of a 750 million PMA token reward. Hurry now. Visit PumaPay.io today. That's PumaPay.io. Potentially an even harder step because we've spent so much time on proof of work. We've already yeah. created such a big ecosystem of miners. It's an even harder thing to then launching something new to perhaps like transition what you already have and what's already growing to this yeah. new system. But you're right that because of that, because of more politics involved, uh -huh. it takes more yeah. time. I do want to ask, you know, when you started at the very beginning, you had mentioned that the only option for users to send their transactions was, you know, this command line interface that not many users were, were familiar with. And, and Mu was this kind of thing where you could create more adoption for Ethereum by creating this kind of an application. I mean, now there's so many wallet services and so many people don't really care about whether certain wallet services are even open source. They're fine with having their like transactions done through an exchange rather than on chain. I feel like infrastructure wise, there's a lot of different ways you can now send your Ethereum, your Ether in a very user-friendly manner. There's lots of staking services now, now being created to make staking as easy as possible for people. On the topic of accessibility, I mean, what's next? What do you think is still a really big pain point for Ethereum that Mu needs to create a service for to reduce the complexity of? So that's a very good, good point. So uh, the, all the decentralized wallets in this space, I do not actually think of them as competition because it, we have to develop together, right? Like they do something and then we do something. And it's like, it's always this use case where like one wallet is better at and then another wallet is better at something else. It's just finding that right point in the space. And again, think about it. This is a decentralized space. And like, if my wallet is the only wallet, then that's like completely lose the purpose of decentralization and like having options or having 
ways, other ways or other wallets to access your Ethereum account. In blockchain space, it's good to have multiple crypto chains, right? You're opening up your options. But when it comes to centralized services versus decentralized services, I think that's where the, like, at least I see the competition or I, at least I see the problem because centralized services are so easy, extremely easy. It's meant to be that way. And that's why people use them. And just getting that kind of feature set or simplicity into a decentralized world, that's the main problem I see in accessibility. Like, because everyone's used to accessing their, let's say, bank account with a username and password. And that's exactly what centralized services provide, username and password. And just because of that, users are, tend to just go and like use that and then they don't really understand what blockchain is about at the end it's like giving you the control back for your funds and getting to that point will be further away slightly further away because like right now every wallet that i've seen including ourselves is when you create it you ask to write down or the wallet asks to write down 24 words so that's like the simplest form of creating a wallet as of right now I see a lot of intersections between what you guys are doing in terms of trying to simplify the username and password process to ENS domains, Ethereum name services. They're this decentralized group that's trying to make Ethereum addresses, which is this alphanumeric long string of random numbers and and figures that people aren't familiar with to something like a website name. Send your ETH to christine.eth or something. That's much easier to say, like, send your ETH to 0XFABCE and like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Um, exactly. Well, thank you for the insights, Kosala. I think we're going to move on now in the show to our tech focus segment, which is where we discuss development for Ethereum 2.0 and how proof of stake is progressing a little bit more on ETH 2.0. Ben is a protocol developer himself. He's the one who's building the protocol. So he's always in the loop about this. Ben, what's our tech update for the week? Yeah, so tech update. Let's talk about MEV, not M-E-W, M-E-V, which is minor extractable value or sometimes called maximal extractable value. And it's a big topic and maybe we need a, a whole episode to deal with it. But just quickly, this is the extra income that miners can make because they get to order transactions within each block. That's a, the job of a miner is to order transactions and they can take advantage of this to gain extra income. For example, Christine, if you wanted to execute a big trade on Uniswap, that's going to move the price of the, of the assets you're trading. And bots can take advantage of that, both front-running and back-running the transaction, which means putting their own transaction ahead of yours and, and their own transaction just behind yours and taking advantage of the price change. But in order to do this kind of reliably, they need help from the miners because miners you know, put the transactions in order in, in the blocks. And so they need to be able to put in the, the, the front run, the back run, and make a kind of transaction sandwich with, with yours in the middle. Currently, there are MEV bots around to kind of look for opportunities to do that. They watch the transaction pools and they'll see your big Uniswap trade and you know, do what they do. And they pay miners directly, not via transaction fees, but direct payment to miner accounts in order to get their bundles of transactions inserted. I read earlier today that yesterday miners made $1.3 million in revenue solely through this minor extractable value, which is about 22% of the total transaction free revenue. Not even all miners are participating yet in this. Uh, it's big business getting bigger. So why do we care? This is about proof of stake, right? This is about ETH 
the point is that after the merge, the miners become the validators. So Zelda and, and Metal Arnold will be assembling blocks and proposing blocks for the, the network and will be eligible to extract this value if they are able to do so. But the worry is that there are several factors which might disadvantage the individual stakers like myself, like the Coindesk validator, and actually put us at a significant disadvantage compared to more centralized services and pools, partly because it's about you know, having the channels to find these opportunities and you know, doing the calculations to look for the ways to extract this value. There's a worry that solo stakers will become disadvantaged and you know, people will will flock to the biggest pools that can guarantee the biggest payouts and so on and so forth. So I thought I'd raise that. Have you got any kind of immediate thoughts, uh, Kasala? Yeah, at some point in time, I think like last year, uh, when things were, you know, kind of stagnant, I did look into MEV and then like did some research on how it exactly works and like front running problems. This is continuously happening. It's happening right now. Every blog, there's a MEV transaction. The main problem that I guess the extractors had at the beginning, because there are so many extractors, so they have to get in front, like whoever wins the transaction order wins the overall profit that you can get from that. So if you look at the blocks and what's the maximum gas fee in that block, it's usually a MEV transaction because they sometimes pay like 2,000 GVs in transaction fees or like 4,000. I've seen 4,000 like GVs. That's just crazy high number. And then obviously like miners can reorder these transactions. They don't care whether like a transaction is paying 4,000 or two. If they want to put that two GVA transaction up above the 4,001, they can still do that. The standard is to order them according to the gas price. So that's why these transactions with crazy high gas prices always win and then therefore the other person get the profit. It's definitely interesting that validators, it's not like the only time they get rewards is when they find a block. With proof of work, I mean, a miner will only receive rewards if he or she finds a block, is able to, you know, have transactions, mm. can order them. But on validators, you have this steady stream of income, which is a lot smaller when you're doing attestations, when you're doing signatures, or basically other responsibilities other than a block proposal. And I think it's interesting that on proof of work, there's a very clear, debatable force, force for centralization in that machines go from generalized computer machinery to ASICs. And people say that that transition is just, you can't beat it. Like no matter how sophisticated your hashing algorithm is, which Ethereum has tried with its ETH hash algorithm, which many other blockchains, proof of work blockchains have tried to game proof of work blockchains have this issue of ASIC centralization, specialized computers progressively getting more efficient at what they do and pushing out the hobbyist miners. Proof of stake, interestingly enough, also has the same kind of centralization forces acting on it, but in a different way. Instead of ASICs, we're talking about staking pools. We're talking about going from solo validators to like large staking pools. This isn't about hardware. This is about increasing your chances of getting a block proposal and getting to reorder your transactions. And I've heard the same argument from Flashbot, the main nonprofit organization that's researching minor MEV. They say that MEV is unavoidable. It's not something that you can ever reduce down to zero. But in my mind, I mean, is it possible to just like algorithmically 
order transactions by fee. So by base fee plus priority fee, like can you take it out of the hands of the miner and then just always make the ordering of transactions according to the value of the transaction fee? If you take that power out of miners' hands, what happens to the network? Is that not a feasible plan? I remember, Ben, you had mentioned Vitalik had a couple of proposals for how to combat this. Was that one of the ideas? Why does that idea not work? <laughs> that was kind of how it used to work, where the MEV bots would bid, as Kasala was explaining, for position in the block. So, uh, And that was one reason why gas prices were so insanely high a couple of months ago, was just MEV bots trying to outbid each other. One of the reasons they've dropped through the floor, which is lovely to see in, in the last couple of weeks, is that a lot of that's happening outside the protocol now. So instead of bidding by gas fees, the MEV bots are going directly to the miners via flashbots or whatever and saying, you know, we will pay you, you know, a 0.2 ETH to insert this transaction, but we're not going to pay it as a transaction fee. We're going to send it directly to your account. Oh. And so it's slightly invisible if you just look at the transaction fees. But you can often see it as part of uh, the transaction in the block. There will be, or part of a bundle, you'll see a payment directly to a miner. So that is how it works now. And you're right, the kind of flashbots are trying to democratize this. So it's not happening in a dark corner and it's completely opaque and only the selected few can get to participate. But they're trying to sort of make it a service that's available to everybody. You know, it's a kind of, if you can't beat them, join them, right? And they're trying to sort of, take away the veil so that everybody can see what's going on and participate on an equal footing. As I understand it, kind of layer two, Arbitrum has a kind of first come, first serve transaction ordering that they enforce via a contract, which means there's no opportunity to be front run because, you know, your transaction is registered on chain before the block is assembled. So uh, there's stuff like that that can be managed at layer two to try to lessen the impact. But yeah, I kind of agree. It's always, it's always going to be there. People who have control will be able to extract value in some way or other. Yeah, yeah. layer two also has another advantage of having quicker or faster block times. Mm. So now people don't have time to like fight against other bots. Like for example, right now, uh, one uh, thing I noticed, so you, let's say someone found uh, one of these MEV opportunities and then they broadcast the transaction, another bot is listening on the transaction pool. So as soon as it detects that transaction, it just publishes the exact same transaction, slightly modified, to, so the funds will go to their account with a higher gas price. So, and then they have 14 seconds to do this over and over and over. But when it comes to layer two, the block time is so small, it becomes a chance at that point. Who's going to win? Okay, I can send another transaction uh, with a higher gas price, but like by the time I send the transaction, the block is already mined. So it's too late. There's that advantage as well. I have been hearing that a lot of the kind of work for MEV will have to be pushed to decentralize applications themselves. It can't be really something that can be fixed by the protocol layer, even yeah. though I have seen various proposals, new ones on ETH research, which, which we'll link to in today's show notes about how to do it from the network layer. But we'll see. I mean, those would require more changes to Ethereum's fee market on top of the big ones that are coming from EIP 1559. And I don't know how happy users would be with another major overhaul. So yes, I agree with Ben. We should keep talking about this on the show. And it's definitely a big topic that we'll circle back to. But let's move on to the last segment of our show for today. We're literally only going to have like two minutes on this, but it's fine. 
I don't have a lot for markets and I just want to focus on the growth of the proof of stake market of proof of stake blockchains. This was a while back, but staked staking as a service startup stake put out a quarterly report sharing figures from Q1 2021 about the growth of the staking industry. Apparently, the total market capitalization of proof of stake assets grew by 150% quarter over quarter to $450 billion from last quarter, Q4 2019 to Q1 2020. And at present, about one third of total cryptocurrency market capitalization is made up of POS coins and projected earnings for users who are staking across all these proof of stake blockchains is expected to be about $18.9 billion by the end of the year. So Ethereum transitioning to a proof of stake blockchain, they're entering into a fast developing and a growingly more lucrative industry that investors, traders are, are starting to, to wake up to. Originally, the way that you would earn interest on your crypto assets is you go to the lending market, which is also developing and is also getting bigger, but it seems like there's this competing industry called the staking industry, also starting to go big time and Ethereum likely to be one of the biggest proof of stake blockchains out there once the merge is successful. I thought it was interesting to hear about these updates on the proof of stake market. Do any of those figures surprise you guys? Definitely that one third surprised me. I did not see that coming. That's a big one. What I find kind of extraordinary about some of these proof of stake protocols is the proportion of the total supply that's actually staked. So if you look at Cardano, it's 74% of uh, all the total supply is, is staked for Polkadot, 64%, Solana, 68%, and so on, so on, so on. And every other chain except for Ethereum, over half the coins are used in the proof of stake mechanism. Ethereum at the moment, ETH 2.0 is 4.5%. And we're kind of targeting 10%-ish uh, of all Ether stakes. That's reckoned to give about the right security level trade-off. It's interesting to think about the differences. My, my assumption is that there's nothing to do with your coins on these other chains. So you might as well stake them. Whereas, you know, you've got plenty of other uses for ETH. But that's my kind of cheeky take on it. But it'd be interesting to know the rationale behind having over half of the total supply in the proof of stake mechanism. There is the lending market too. And also, Kasala, on your point, it's actually one-fifth. I'm sorry. It's oh, okay. one-fifth of the total market capitalization. So that's a lot. I said one-third because I thought that I was reading my fractions wrong, but no, 20% is one-fifth. All right, that's a wrap. Thank you so much, Kasala, for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you to everyone tuned in for another episode of Mapping Out ETH2. Please join us again next week for another weekly roundup of all your markets, tech, community, updates related to the ongoing and active evolution of the Ethereum blockchain. And if you have any questions you would like answered on the podcast, please connect with each of us on Twitter. Our handles are in today's show notes. You can also subscribe to our newsletters. Christine writes every week on Ethereum 2.0 development, which you can find at coindesk.com. And I write every other week, what's new in ETH2, which you can find at eth2.news or follow me on Twitter and I'll let you know when the next one's out. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Kasala, very much for joining us. It's been uh, awesome to uh, talk to you and talk about all things My Ether Wallet and staking. Thank you. See you guys next week for Mapping Out ETH 2.0 Ethereum. So it was meant to be. Goodbye. Bye, everybody.
You have been listening to Mapping Out ETH 2.0, part of the Coindesk Podcast Network. This episode featured Christine, Kim, and Ben Edgington with guest Kasala Hemachandra. Today's show is produced, edited, and announced by Michelle Mousseau with music by Tide Electric. Did you enjoy the show? We would love to hear what you think. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your preferred service and talk to us directly via email at podcasts at coindesk.com.